This season of My First Dungeon is sponsored by Soul Muppet Publishing and their Kickstarter campaign for Orbital Blues Afterburn. We have been fans of Soul Muppet Publishing for a while now and are beyond excited to be working with them as part of this campaign. Zach, Sam, Josh, and the entire team at Soul Muppet Publishing create the kind of games that we love to play, ones that target specific experiences and leverage every aspect of the text, the visuals, and the mechanics of the game to support players and their game masters at the table. Everything in Orbital Blues Afterburn will absolutely deliver on that same promise. Click on the link to the Kickstarter campaign in our show notes to help back this excellent project and to support an awesome company like Soul Muppet Publishing. And with that, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another season of My First Dungeon, the tabletop role-playing podcast that helps game masters learn new games and make each one better than the last. This season, we are blasting off to the retro rock and roll future that never was and nobody wanted. Here's a little bit about the game. You are clear for liftoff in three, two, one. Godspeed, cowboy. It is an intergalactic age of cowboys, outlaws, and bandits playing on an interstellar stage. It is a time of hyper-capitalism and a cutthroat gig economy. Unreliable trash heaps carry scrappy underdogs to their next gig, and corporation freighters lumber across the horizon laden with an empire's bounty. The backstreets of every terraform metropolis brim with a thousand lonely hearts and a thousand more venal vendettas. The burnt-out wastelands between bright lights are lawless bat countries, anachronistic Americana languishing beneath multiple moons. Madness in every direction at every solar hour. These are the music-fueled Moon Age daydreams of a rebel space age. These are your orbital blues. If you haven't guessed it from that last line, we are playing Orbital Blues this season, which we're very excited about. So this season, I am going to be acting as the Game Master. I'm going to be taking over the Game Master chair for this season. Uh, so obviously, I can't quite do Game Mastering and Hosting right now. So I'm going to be handing over my hosting duties to my good friend and yours, Elliot Davis. Elliot, how's it going? Hey, Brian. Good to be here. Glad to be jumping into the host seat and helping you along your Orbital Blues journey. It should be fun. First things first, in your hosting duties, you want to help introduce our guests? I would love to. Um, so in addition to myself and Brian, today on the mic, we have Zach Cox and Sam Sleeney. Hello. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Good to be here. Thanks for coming out. We're really excited to play a little bit of space. We, we haven't done space yet on this show, so we're very excited to do it. And honestly, there's no better way to tell uh, a space story than a space western, a sad, a sad cowboy story. Yeah. So where we want to start, I guess, with this conversation, uh, Zach and Sam, is broadly from your and how you'd put it. What kind of story is Orbital Blues trying to tell? Uh, I think Orbital Blues, at its heart, is it's very much when I like wrote it was like my love letter to Americana. It's very much like Jack Kerouac's On the Road. It's Cowboy Bebop, it's uh, Firefly, although that's not one that inspired me directly. It's the kind of game that I know people like to run with it. It's Guardians of the Galaxy. It's any kind of 
like anachronistic space media that we've had in the last couple of years mixed with a sense of wonder, freedom, shadowed by working in a gig economy. Uh, it's for people who want to be sad space cowboys, essentially, is the uh, is the tagline for it, a game about sad space cowboys. And I think it does that pretty well. Uh, we did a lot of research around the time that we were writing it, and there wasn't anything out there that was doing it quite the same as what we wanted. You could have a wretched hive of scum and villainy in scum and villainy, but it was very high sci-fi and we wanted to go a bit low sci-fi. So it's a game about just being a bum in space, essentially. It's very like you have no real aims, you have no real goals per se. You're a high plains drifter in space. So picking up the type of story the engine is designed to tell is this group of desperate self-employed very depressed people who live together on a spaceship and inevitably they end up resorting towards crime the thing that all of your characters or your interstellar outlaws are going to do during character creation is they're going to choose their trouble which is the reason that they are sad in space right that's going to give you a couple of bits of like soft vague backstory that you start in and pad out later and a couple of like prompts for how your trouble affects you as a player. And they're kind of, they're experience prompts, right? So in a normal game, you might get experience points that make you level up by like fighting monsters or stealing treasure or doing quests. In Orbital Blues, you get it by being sad, right? right. Sad for experience <laughs> right. points is right. one of the things. So as the GM, you're going to be finding out at the start why your players are depressed, bring them together, find something for them to get messed up in some web of deceit and depression and crime. And then as the game builds, they're going to be getting more blues, right? Which is that resource that we call experience. And then once you get a bunch of it, you're going to be shooting for some final climactic scene that relates to your character's relationship with their trouble, right? And that trouble might be something about their backstory. Maybe they used to be in prison or in a gang or they used to be in love. Something about behaviours they have. They might party too hard. They might drink. They might make bad life choices to do violence. Or it might be something about what they want from the future. And what you're then going to be doing is creating things that relate to those troubles and then building to a climactic moment where at the height of the campaign, probably in the final of the final episodes of the season, you're going to see some of these troubles start brewing, which is the mechanic. And that's the kind of pacing tool you're aiming for. So... You're telling these stories that like build up and then explode at the end because of the amount of emotional baggage that the GM has dropped upon the players and the players have brought with them. I don't want to get too deep into mechanics because I'm going to come back to you for mechanics. I want to get to Brian first uh, with this idea of telling pressed space cowboy stories. What drew you to this game and telling that kind of story? I mean, like the second I saw the cover for this game, I was like, I have to have it. <laughs> this game looks amazing. I grew up, I did, I know Sam, I don't, I know you don't love Firefly. I loved Firefly when I was a kid. I loved uh, Cowboy Bebop even more. Mm. And telling those kind of stories where, what, what, I love, what I really love about the universe of Orbital Blues is that it's not shiny and fancy sci-fi. It's like cassette tapes and, you know, the engine's not, we don't have to understand how the engine 
functions. We just have to know, you know, no. if you hit it this way and that way, it's going to work. Yeah. I really like living in worlds where things are kind of shitty. Yeah. By design. I think it's just fun. There's so much <laughs> more character in that than there is in like, oh, look, you've got the beautiful, you know, spaceship that is perfect and all the right angles and everything's flush. And I like things that have holes in them, have been worn and have a story behind them. So there's uh, something really fun about that. So that's the good. Um, that's what you're excited about. What are you What are you kind of feeling nervous about in tackling this system for the first time? And how can Zach and Sam best sort of alleviate your concerns and set you up for success for playing this game, running this game? So I mean, with any new system, like I'm always worried about like the mechanics. Luckily, the mechanics of this game are really, from what I've read, they get out of your way and just allow you to tell a good story. But what I really want from this game is creating an environment that the players can really get into the spirit of like being a sad space cowboy, like really creating an environment that allows them to really live that to the fullest, to, to really play into building up someone's blues and troubles and getting, as Zach was saying, like getting that climactic moment at the end by slowly building up and building up on these troubles. And I know we've talked on this show a lot about how much we love game systems that explicitly do that. They explicitly build towards like a climax or build towards that. The mechanics inherently help you tell the kind of story they're trying to tell. So I'm really excited to play it and I'm just nervous about getting it right. <laughs> so I'll be interested to see what, what you guys can say to uh, alleviate my concerns, but I think it's going to be a whole lot of fun. <laughs> and I'm really excited for it. So it sounds like tone is maybe a concern. Yeah. How would you, uh, Zach or Sam sort of maybe help Brian out with that? I think that it's not a game where you can get something right or wrong. It's not a preset setting. It's not a pre-ascribed setting where someone's going to sit down in your table and say, you know, after a game, oh, this didn't feel like, insert licensed IP here. This didn't feel like this thing that I I love. Orbital Blues captures the tone and the atmosphere and the feelings and the vibes of those IPs that you mentioned that you you love, like Firefly and Cowboy Bebop. And it puts you in a world of your own devising to explore and uh, really get into those kind of stories. So I don't think anyone can come away from it and say, hey, you, you did that wrong, Brian, or <laughs> anything like that. Uh, it's just a case of sitting down and forming a found family with a bunch of other misfits, miscreants, and criminals on your little spaceship and just trying to survive together in a universe which, as you said, is not clean cut, it's not fresh, it's not like glossy, it's not high sci-fi, it's very dog-eared. It's very coffee-stained. It's very worn around the edges. It's cracked leather and it's chipping wood paneling. It's all these little relics and antiquities of Americana and days gone by. There is fancy things in the setting, but they're not yours. You, you don't have them. You can't afford them. Uh, some big corporation, bigwigs control them, and you couldn't ever dream of getting your hands on those kinds of things. So it, it's more, can you steal them and sell them to somebody for your next week's worth of food? Uh, can you get those things and deliver them to the guy who's 
promised to cancel your brother's debt if you get them for him. It's just a game where it's purely just feeling and emotion. And as Zach said, it is powered by this ongoing feeling of things are not going to get any better. Let's try and stop them from getting much worse. And the Troubles and Blue system helps players to mechanically realize their character's narrative faults and flaws in a very mechanically friendly way, in a way that has the, gets the mechanics and puts them directly into the narrative. It was quite innovative what Zach did with uh, Troubles and Blues in the way that we did, as he said, uh, turned uh, sad into XP, being sad for XP. So I'll let Zach talk more about that because that's very much their wheelhouse. The technique when it comes to GMing this is like understanding that, like Sam said, there's nothing you can do wrong, right? right? Because we've not written a setting, we've written a place where vibes occur, right? And as long as you obey a couple of internal suggestions around like how it is things look and feel. All of which are in the book in a handy bullet point list. All of Yes, and I'm about to read them because <laughs> I, I did prep for this. So there's three things that were true about the Frontier Galaxy that we've written. For better or worse, humanity has colonized known space and stagnated thereafter. And that's a, the galaxy belongs to you guys and there's no aliens there. It's just people in space and things have got worse since we colonize everything. Corporations and competitive industry were and are a driving and unchecked force. Hypercapitalism runs everything. And known space is too large, too busy, and too disconnected to police properly or efficiently. As long as you follow those three things, you can basically put anything that would make sense in any space genre there. There's no pages of law to read. There's no information. We've You can piece together a setting by reading all the different business cards and company slogans and bits of advertising and comparing the five adventures and hooking up for the different corporations that appear in the different ones and the references between them. But like, that's not what 99% of GMs are doing. And then the other way to make sure Orbital Blues feels like Orbital Blues is the technology, which is another page on here. There's a couple things that are going to apply to all the things in the setting, because it's kind of weird, right? Because Sam talked about like wood and CRT screens and stuff from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, but also there being lasers and spaceships and hyperspace drives. And if anything's nice, as Sam said, doesn't belong to you. A corporation owns it and you cannot afford it. So technology and thus everything else in the galaxy, robust, mass-produced, kitsch, function over form, unreliable, branded. And as long as you take at least a couple of those six principles and apply them to a anything that is a piece of technology or a company, or a place in the universe, you're going to have a easy time extrapolating what it feels like. My other piece of advice is if you are making your own adventure, uh, watch an old Western film. <laughs> Honestly, in, in preparation for this, I have been listening to um, like Ennio Morricone, you know, Good, the Bad, the Ugly, uh, Fistful of Dollars stuff. Just like, it's definitely going to be part of the vibe of whatever I, I put together. Just because like, I love, I've just been going around the house just whistling. <laughs> uh, it's great. 
So we've got a little bit of setting and and sort of all the ways that you can think about that. I want to jump back to this blues and troubles mechanic, because I think this is, um, like Sam was saying, this really unique thing. Zach, could you give maybe us an overview of how that comes into play at the beginning and in play a little bit of what you were saying before, but more in like a how Brian should be sort of thinking about blues and troubles as he's running? These are a super powerful tool because it does like a whole bunch of different things at once, right? So that's the second thing you pick in character creation right after you've picked the vibe of your space cowboy, which is from like a big drop table on a spread of like, you are the mechanic, the drifter, the chain smoker, the damsel, all these options, right? The next thing you pick is the reason you have depression. So each one of them is a set of five questions um, and then three prompts. Your characters answer two of those questions during character creation, and then you have three more you can answer throughout play. There are also then three experience prompts, and they can be done as you are playing, like, and they relate to or reinforce the themes of the troubles. Uh, picking up some examples, my favorite trouble is called, I think it's called Red Right Hand. Ah, Bloodthirsty, here we go. So there's five questions for this one, right? What was the first fight you ever won? What scar do you wear with pride? What enemies has you worked hard to earn? When was the last time you killed someone you only meant to maim? And which of your old friends now fears your brutality? So the first thing is these are questions for your players to answer, not for the GM to answer, right? So it's not your job to think about who these players are or the people the characters killed or fights they've won or scars they have, right? It's the player's job to come up with the answer to those questions. Those things might be bits of backstory or like the scar is like something physical about the character, right? Oh, an ache or a pain they have or a way they look. Then there's, what enemies have you worked hard to earn? That can either be a rival or a faction. What old friends are scared of you? That's a person you're going to find out. And there's also going to be things there that is pride. And there's also regret in those questions, right? So within there, we've got backstory generation, things about you physically as a person, things about your behaviors, how you like fighting, and then also ways of generating contacts and factions that you might be friends with or you might be enemies with. And each time the players answer those questions, they're going to gain blues. So what these are also is ways for you to hook into a plot other things that happened to the PC in the past, right? Because this game is about coming back and visiting the things that have made you the person you are. And then there's three more things. So you gain another blues when, for this one, you lose your temper you reach for weapons before words, or you leave a foe cowering in fear. This one's my favorite because those three things read like a poem because they're going to happen in order when the character <laughs> loses loses their shit. And so what your, your job when you're GMing this game, play this scenario, make sure your player's having fun, do all the stuff you normally would be GMing. Look at the troubles of the characters that you've got in front of you and work out what opportunities you can give them to be messed up disaster bastards, right? Because these people are sad, emotional wrecks. They've got trauma and bad things have happened to them. And your job as the GM is create an opportunity for more bad stuff to happen to them in the future by giving them things they can hook at. So if you've got you know, there's some of these that are relationships with factions and like you've got to bring those factions in. There's some of the relationship with people. You can just leave a person who your characters love sick behind and have it be figments or memories of there. You can put the person in the room. It's going to make it 10 times bigger. So a lot of the 
tips for me is about building, giving your players opportunities and good players who like the system and have fun and are happy emerging from these sets of rules will pick up stuff you weren't expecting and introduce characters where you weren't. But yeah, give them opportunities to make absolutely terrible decisions Mm. based on their troubles. And because they're going to want to do it because they will get experience points. Yeah, so even if they're successful with something, have it take a toll on them and fall into or look to fall into a vice or a bad habit or drop a DM to the wrong person after midnight, you know, just have them (laughs) really just make a fool of themselves or, well, not make a fool of themselves, but go back to their, their worst ways. Sad for XP is just like an excellent tagline for this game. Anytime you need anything, just think sad for XP. I do really love this game. This is true for this game and other games we've talked about on this podcast, like Wander Home or things. Love, 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 love. And every time I don't see this in the game, I'm like, why aren't you doing this? Of having those like very leading questions to ask your players that challenge your players like right out of the gate. It's like, okay, great. You just pick, are you the chain smoker or are you the damsel? And then, like, the next thing you do is you answer, what was your first fight like? A, it immediately helps the player, like, ground their character and, like, figure out who exactly they are. And it gives the GM, like, so much great fodder of, like, great, now I know this person come back, this person come back. I, if I say this, anytime I say this, this character will know that something's coming down the, down the path for them. The other thing this is good for, right, is that it leaves a bunch of backstory in quantum for you to answer later. And it means yeah. you get playing quickly by only answering two of the five most important reasons why your character is depressed. Yeah. And you don't have to spend loads of time writing a one-page backstory. We don't care about what planet they grew up on or where they went to school or what gang they used to run with unless they're running with a gang is the reason that they're the person they are. You basically try to work out the most important thing about the character emotionally before you work out anything about them apart from what kind of space drifter they are, right? That's the speed of the character creation. Making as much stuff for the GM to mess around with as possible, as quickly as possible. And I love what, um, Sam, you said before about how even when they're succeeding, you can throw these troubles and blues can come into play, like adding blues can come in trouble even when you're succeeding. If it's, for example, the bloodthirsty, like you said, like you choose weapons over words, you still might succeed in that fight in this traditional idea of like an RPG's success of rolling, but you still are contributing to your blues and building towards this um, underlying mechanic, which is great. And speaking of the the roles, the actually like getting into combat, I'd love to just briefly overview the the central dice rolling mechanic of this game and how that comes into place. So you've got this underlying blues and trouble system. What's the other side of that system of how you're resolving actions? This is a hack of a game called Best Left Buried that I made before. It's about being a, a mercenary, works for a mercenary company, uh, and is going into dungeons to find treasure, and it doesn't go well for them from a mental health perspective or a physical health perspective. And it's a bunch of metaphors for lots of stuff around workers' conditions. But that game has uh, old-school Renaissance OSRE micro-systems, like the core dice mechanic, and then hooked onto that, is a bunch of story game macro economy, right, to do with these blues mechanics. So the system used in Orbital Blues is really simple. You've got three stats. You have your savvy, your muscle, and your grit. 
Those are a number between 0 and 2, and you are adding that to 2d6, and you are trying to get, I believe, an 8. It's going to happen more often than not, and there's a couple of ways that things can get better or worse for you. If you are in a better situation because of things that are happening, you're rolling two di three dice, making the two higher. If you're in a bad situation, you're against the odds. You roll three dice, you're going to pick the two lowest. So it's your kind of way to negotiate with the GM that you're in a better position, not a bad one. So you get more dice, you're more likely to hit score. Combat works the same way. Uh, you're rolling some dice and then you'll do some damage based on the number of hits you have. There's a couple of different types of enemy, but like combat's really simple. There's no mechanical grid or anything. It's abstracted ranges for theatre of the mind combat because westerns aren't about tracking exactly which five foot square of the battlefield someone's on. It's about how far away they are from you. It's very, it's very cinematic, yeah. And then weapons are pretty simple as well. You've got like a couple of basic types and then they have tags based on the cool thing you think your weapon can do. Is it intimidating or concealable or, uh, you know, various options for the more uh, dangerous military weapons? Because the idea is everybody's armed with something in the Outlaw Galaxy, but uh, you're going to get funny looks from certain people if you turn up to Spaceport with assault weapons or whatever, or, you know, fancy laser guns. So, yeah, the, the mechanics are, are super light and the job is for them when we're writing it was the intention that we want the mechanics to get out of the way so you can focus on the story and the emotions, right? And they're there to resolve things that would be difficult to have as part of the conversation. There's some things that we, we can't elide over, uh, but they're mostly aimed to get out of the way so you can tell a story and resolve what happens when someone needs to punch someone in the face. It's not something that you can min-max, really, simply because of how flat the characters are statistically but it's the flavor and the themes and the narrative that the mechanics instill upon them that makes each character unique rather than the stat tree that you go into as zach said the combat and the mechanics in general were made to just step aside for the storytelling but when they do come in they are impactful meaningful and serve a purpose in giving structure to your character's struggles. I'd say the exception to that is space combat. We've got quite a detailed set of rules for how that works, mm. uh, mainly because when we were doing early playtesting, uh, only the person flying the ship really did anything. So we've written a bunch of processes to make sure that it still felt good because it wasn't in our playtests. And because it's going to happen and we want to make sure everyone has fun. Everyone wants to have a good space fight. Everyone wants to be able to participate in the space fight. I do just really love how simple this mechanic is and how it, like you said it yourself, it gets out of the way, especially for a GM coming in. Anytime there's a new dice system, you kind of have to relearn like DCs. So like, you know, in D&D, &D, I know that a 15 is like hard, but not impossible or whatever. And in like kids on bikes, I'm kind of like, okay, I guess an eight is pretty good or whatever. But having this just be a standard thing you're trying to hit, like, great, you're always trying to hit eight. I'm like, okay, all, the only thing I need to negotiate from a purely mechanical standpoint is, are you rolling straight? Are you rolling uh, against the odds? Or rolling with the upper hand? So, like, there's just one question I have to negotiate, really, uh, which is great. There's a bunch of games you can play that have, like, several different levers. Like, if you look at the example of... Uh D&D, you've got your DC you're hitting as a stat modifier and there's advantage, disadvantage on top of that. And sometimes when you're looking at it from a narrative perspective, you're like, should this be advantage or disadvantage or should this be a change in DC? I'm not really sure, who knows? And then if you look at something like Blaze in the Dark, right? 
you've got the same mechanic all around, but like position and effect are doing different things. Yeah. And like, you know, within those examples of like commonly placed games, it's often time where you're not sure what lever as the GM you're meant to pull. And there's like a matrix somewhere in the book that tells you which one of these things is the most important and a diagram. And like, this is like, now there's one lever and it's forwards and backwards. And that works at how you do it. Sometimes you have so many advantages. The DM just says, oh, we're not rolling for this. And there's specific guidelines for like when it's not worth doing that. And the answer is normally if failing it wouldn't be interesting or there's no risk, right? But yeah, getting out of the way is the goal of of most RPG mechanics for me, unless you're trying to do something very complicated that can't be resolved simply. And GMs need help doing it because ultimately rules and rules writing and system engineering, right? is designing a space where you trust the GM to make the right decision quickly and easily versus giving them a help to work it out when they don't. And the good systems give GMs tools to work out the best things to happen in a given situation. And this game like clearly doesn't care as much about like, here's a hit point sink, here's a hit point sink, and we're going to... No. When we came to enemies, there is two types of enemies in the game. Not as in two, ar- not as in two archetypes, or just two different types of monster you can fight. But uh, anything that's antagonistic towards you that you're going to get into combat with is separated into two categories. There are goons and there are... Marks. Yeah, yeah, yeah marks. Goons are, they're your chaff. They're your unnamed mob guys who just get like killed in a shootout or their car veers off the road and crashes they don't have names. That's not to say it's senseless violence, but their role in the narrative isn't particularly important versus the marks, the bigger NPCs who have troubles of their own, have gambits of their own, have their own stat lines and are worth a, an epic showdown with once you finally caught up with them or robbed them of all their other resources or ambush them. However you want to go about tackling them, they're the ones that that matter. So as you said about how combats can become a hit point sink, or you can get to a point where the GM says, we're not even going to roll for this because you're just sloughing through a, a bunch of enemies, zombies, etc. like tons of hit points, but no real reactions or dy- dynamic factors to the fight. We just stepped aside from all that and said, okay, here are your goons, and there are different kinds of goons of varying levels of competency. And then you have a guide on designing marks, which is your uh, competent NPCs that are going to give the crew a run for their money. They're going to be the ones that have bounties on their heads. They're going to be the ones that are running the crime gangs. They're the ones that you're going to owe money to, etc. So it's, again, everything was done in the instance of stepping aside and focusing on the things that mattered which was telling a story. And I feel like we talk about this on this show a lot, that the best games, the games that we get most excited about are the ones that choose a thing that they want to do and everything in the book either points towards that or gets out of the way of that. Yeah. And this this game clearly wants to be about the troubles and the blues. And so that is like drilled down in, it's the second thing you do in character creation. And then everything else just gets out of the way of that. It, it facilitates it and gets out of the way. Which I love, which is like, it is always two of our, you know, check marks of what is a game that we're going to love and is like going to be fun. Hey there, it's Elliot from the Many Sided Media team. 
In addition to playing and producing here on My First Dungeon, I'm also a game designer, known for such games as Something is Wrong with the Chickens, a rules-like game of chickens, eldritch horror, and revenge. Project Echo, a solo time travel game played in the pages of a planner. And the upcoming Rom-Com Drama Bomb, a three-player game of meet-cutes and mayhem. If you like weird and unique games and want to bring something new to your table, head to moreblueberries.shop and use code MYFIRSTDUNGEON for 20% off your order. That's M-O-R-E-B-L-U-E-B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot shop. Thanks! Little Wolves is a folktale TTRPG where players fill the fur of shape-shifting werewolves in a realm of fae and of magic called the Enchanted Forest. Players will craft physical masks that represent their characters and use them during play to shift between their wolf and their mortal forms. As they perform favors and complete quests, new marks are made on their masks that reflect the real physical changes that the werewolves undergo. The Enchanted Forest is deep and detailed with fey queens, courts, and all manner of denizen for your werewolves to meet. The crowdfunding campaign for Little Wolves launches May 14th. You can follow the campaign at bytes.rip slash little wolves. That's B-Y-T-E-S dot R-I-P slash little wolves. And you can check out the free demo and quick start at bytes.rip slash little demo. Absolutely. And so it sounds like, Brian, you, you've gotten a lot of great advice here from Zach and Sam, and it feels like you've got so much to work with with just this original Orbital Blues book. But the reason we're here, the reason we're doing this series is because there's another Orbital Blues book on the way, Orbital Blues Afterburn. Zach and Sam, do you want to give us the broad pitch on Afterburn? Yeah, what do we got coming down the pipeline? Afterburn is our answer to everything and anything that people felt was missing from the core book. We didn't want to do an Orbital Blues 2. We were also explicitly banned in internal development from calling it Orbital 2s, as much of a good name I thought that was. And we put out a, a bunch of tweets, a bunch of polls, did a lot of ground research asking people, what do you want? more of what do you think this game needs more of what would you like to see expanded and we will put that all together into a splash book into a a compendium because things did hit the cutting room floor the first time around because we wanted a lean book we wanted something that was easy to just pick up and play and some things we felt didn't quite get full justice that they needed zach came at ship combat so many times in the initial run that we just thought, right, this is good. And if people want it to be better, we can come back at this at a later time. People wanted more adventures, which we've definitely delivered on with all of the various stretch goal adventures and supplications that people have made for Orbital Blues, which we're all incredibly proud of. And they wanted some more 
tonality and advice, uh, exactly what this podcast is doing on how to actually realize these games because the book reads and looks very atmospheric. It's dripping with tonality, but that's something that a lot of GMs, old and new, can struggle with. I sometimes have a problem where I read a a role-playing game and I think to myself, whoever wrote this, their games must be absolutely fire. But in reading this, I don't think I'm going to capture whatever magic is happening around their table. And I wanted to try and address that and make it so that the book, no matter whose hands it was in, leads to an absolutely stellar session where the vibe is captured, the atmosphere is captured, and players feel like they're in that setting, that it's alive. That's what the book is. That's what we're distilling down into this this expansion. So what we wanted to do is basically add more. It's a spaceship book, right? That's There's a spaceship on the cover, and it's about adding more stuff to do spaceships, and there's a big, big adventure at the end that Sam's been working on that we're super proud of. The first section of it is written entirely by our co-creator, Josh Clark, who is the artist behind Orbital Blues and has weirdly done lots of the lore and the setting he bits by writing the amazing art book with like some actual text in it about the galaxy, which we don't normally do. Putting a bunch of flavor text in adverts in all of the art. I love just looking through this book and looking at the adverts and just like reading weird taglines from the space that never was. He had no direction on that. He went hog wild on his own accord um, (laughs) and he'd come back to us and be like, I've done an entire newspaper spread full of little references to various sci-fi media, my own games, fun little lore nods. He has a whole uh, extended Josh universe within All Ball Blues that, as Zach mentioned earlier, Someone could piece together in a very from software kind of way, looking at all the little bits of flavor text, but it's it's this acute attention to detail that I think brings like the pieces in the world to life. And the art, in case you've managed to like listen to 40 minutes of podcast and not look at it yet, it's like photo kit bashed public domain painted over stuff of like collage work, but also a load of painting as well, because Josh is just mad. And a lot of the art is like in-universe advertising material because of hypercapitalism. So you'll get slogans or graffiti or posters or like someplace advertising uh, that you can live on a space colony or here's our brand of spacesuits we want to sell you. You, Nobody makes them like Caldera and it's a smiling guy in a spacesuit, right? What we've then done is Josh has done 18 different spaceship bios, uh, each of which is on a full page spread as if it's an advertising pitch right so what you're going to be giving your players is an in-world spaceship handbook uh, that they can flip through and decide which spaceship they want to live on so that's kind of like the first step uh, and that's the first like third of the book the second bit which is the bit that like i'm in charge of uh, which is coming up with more stuff to do with character creation for the spaceship we tend to find that most people refer to like think of their orbital blues spaceship as the x character in the game the other one that's there like there's a reason that specifically Firefly and Cowboy Bebop are both named after the spaceship, right? Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine. Voyager. Yeah. Enterprise. Uh, all They're all named after spaceships. Battlestar Galactica, you can go on. And, you know, the, your spaceships are going to feel very different depending on, like, what they're called and what the backstory is. And it's to set the tone of the campaign, right? The Nautilus 
or the Seraph are going to be very, feel very different to the Sultan of Swing or the Rhinestone Cowboy. There's a bunch of like music references in all of these, and like we've been adding more stuff. And then also, I've been writing a bunch of advice at the moment, but, like how to run games set in space, and like because my pet peeve with when I've played Orbital Blues is that like I am not personally a rocket scientist, an astrophysicist, or an astronaut. I do not understand how spaceships work in real life, and that's quite. Like, when you've done enough Dungeoneering, right, and you've played enough D&D or whatever old-school game you're into, you learn, like, how to how you would Dungeoneer, how to approach a scenario, because you understand the internally consistent logic of what happens when I apply a pickaxe to a door or what things I can crowbar or what things I can set on fire. That's much more difficult in space. So it's writing a bunch of stuff that kind of explains how to use spaceships and the vague type of scientific realism that happens in here without entering into, like, Star Trek-esque technobabble. And also adding a set of, like, something that feels like a trouble that's a backstory generator for a ship, right? Uh, Because that's much more difficult. And then adding just lots of advice and procedure. And then a big adventure, which Sam's going to talk about. Yeah, so an adventure that combines all of this with another unmentioned feature, uh, which was that when we asked people in the weeks that followed the launch what they were doing with their games... Uh, a non-insignificant number of people said, I am coming up with rules for androids and cyborgs. And we didn't put any aliens in. And we kind of, oh, we didn't overlook androids or cyborgs. We did mention androids in the book and said that they were just really uncanny and not all human-like. You could clearly tell them apart. Um, but it seems that, you know, Blade Runner, that Blade Runner really did a number on people and people want to be sad robots in space. So it's going to include rules for uh, including and uh, playing as androids in Orbital Blues. The adventure itself will be all about spaceship racing. Uh, It takes place in a system where there is a huge space rally derby kind of thing, and it's on the players to race in it, sabotage it, fix it, whatever you want to do with it. It's a it's a sandbox where players will have a lot of options to interact with all the different tiers and calibers of society in the frontier galaxy uh, and make their mark on this system of five planets. It's a, a love letter to NASCAR and racing and finding spirit and heart in the streets it's it's, it's very back streets is uh is afterburn and its contents because there's nothing more sad than driving very fast and slightly to the left it's very rich <laughs> me writing this as a man who can't drive so it sounds like there's so many goodies in this book for players and gms to to sink their teeth into um is there anything that is ready and you'd like to see or recommend that Brian make use of that's not in the main book when he's sort of planning this adventure? Or is there any like additional thoughts you have for Game Masters that you're putting into Afterburn uh, that you think is is worthwhile to share before we dive into our own Order Blues adventure? My suggestion would be if you're running the Unchained Melody adventure from the core book, uh, we could cut off a little a little slice of some of the ships that we've we've made to go in the ship catalog. And one of those could serve as the basis for your cruise ship 
So we could we could cut off a little slice of uh, a pre-generated ship. Uh, what do you think about that, Zach? Yeah, sounds good. I've also got some work in progress stuff for. Uh, there's a couple of other new bits of trouble economy we could send over because I've been writing some stuff about maybe choosing not to be depressed anymore and trying to oh. get rid of your troubles rather than just accepting they exist. We can be a content space cowboy. Thing. Yeah, so it's about finding peace. Um, and coming to terms with what you've been through and letting it go and ergo having a sort of nice retirement that you wouldn't otherwise be able to obtain as an interstellar outlaw. Love that. And understanding that like your spaceship is family and love and like means that you have freedom and that you aren't working a job somewhere. You are instead on your spaceship flying around the galaxy doing really cool things, maybe. I also love that you guys are actively trying to find a way to make your spaceship sad and depressed and like give it its own yeah, trouble. I think that's a, great. That was a real creative battle for me, how to make the, spa- the spaceship sad, because the spaceships aren't sad in the core book. They're really cool and lasers and explosions happen. <laughs> and I spent a load of time trying to work out how to give a spaceship a trouble. And what I worked out is that actually the spaceship isn't about sadness we kind of came to terms with the fact that through talking about it, spaceships are actually this different thing. It's this found family in space, right? And it's it's love and it's care and it's maybe making a good life choice rather than being stuck in the same place being sad. And while I was trying to work that out, I wrote about 600 spaceship names. And then Brian sent me 500 more spaceship <laughs> names in a Google Doc after we met in a whiskey bar at Gen Con. Little peek into how this all came to be. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, thank you Rowan Rook and Decker. If you stay afterwards and head over to our Patreon to hear the bonus part of this interview, I'll, I'll read off some of our spaceship names and we can tell the whole story of how this season came to be. I love that distinction that you make of the spaceship is this like home. It is this like kind of beacon of good it is like the one good thing that is like consistent and positive in the players lives i really i think that's that's actually a thing that i'm going to kind of drill down on in the game a little bit of like everything outside is bad your lives are bad but this is at least a haven whether or not it's safe at all times who knows but it is a haven for you guys i think i think metaphors in games and like themes are really important and can't be understanding like a lot of people who write games i don't think sometimes like interact with the subtext of what they've written and have a think about it like it's been really interesting like as i've become a more experienced game designer i wrote best Left when i wrote best Left buried i got to the end of it i thought i'd written a sort of call of cthulhu sas warhammer fantasy role-playing grim dark exploration game and i found out i'd actually written a quite long metaphor about how evil capitalism is and how awful it is for workers' conditions. And then I think when we finished Orbit of the Blue, again, I don't know how much this was clear to you, Sam, when we were writing it. Like, um, I don't think we clocked. It was about depression and found family (laughs) and, uh, like... It was there at the start. But like, I remember kind of... <laughs> in days of old when we sat down in a, in uh, in that pub and I, I said to you, I was like, I want to do a Cowboy Bebop RPG. And you were like, okay, let's do it. And I set about writing a Cowboy Bebop simulator, essentially, that as we went on and it came into its own and as, as Zach says, the circumstances and deeper reading of your own writing become apparent. At the time, yeah. I was self-employed, 
Brexit had just happened. My means of self-employment weren't going particularly well. The gig economy was really rough. I was splitting with my fiance of like a few years at the time. And I found a lot of my own troubles with, with mental health and poverty that I've experienced in the past bled into the work in such a way that at times led me to be quite precious about it because it was more of an internal reflection than I realized. And at times it'd get a bit too heavy. And sometimes I'd think it was inappropriate to gamify some elements of it. But me and Zach spoke through and talked through a lot of middle grounds and found a lot of ways to find catharsis in this kind of writing in the way that Zach had found in writing Best Left Buried, that it was about the kind of stress and tolls that your work takes upon you. For me, it was that I am working in a gig economy that makes me miserable, but it's the only thing I've got and nothing else is particularly going very well. And I'm so I'm going to have to keep doing it anyway. And that was when I realized I was like, oh, wait, that when I realized that was the same plight as the player characters, it became very easy for me to write more and more and more. And it went from being a silly little cowboy bebop simulator where everyone was, you know, quipping and firing off guns and occasionally having like a jazz monologue scene into something where you could build characters that had lives and loves and troubles and entire stories all that were fitted and reflected onto a small character sheet by merit of the energy and the flavor that we imbued into the book and narratively and mechanically. And Zach's right. I, I think there's a lot of texts out there today that can sort of lean towards the superficial and the flashy and the corporate. And this is this thing that you love built around a role-playing game that you know, put it on your table and you can be just like the characters in this thing. I don't think either me or Zach wanted to do that with this. We didn't want people to be Faye or Jet or Spike. We wanted them to be their own people struggling in their own ways in a universe similar to Cowboy Bebop or Firefly. And as a result, it's born out of experiences and our own struggles as people who either are or were at the time self-employed, working in a gig economy, maybe not having like the best personal relationships, interpersonal relationships. Being a creative, being a writer is is hard and it's not always worth it. But I feel like when you make something like this, I'm really proud of this, Zach's really proud of this. When you make something like this, it does feel worth it. And it is good to get this kind of catharsis and a release for what you're feeling into a book, which ultimately is about imagination games and silly little sad space cowboys. But there's something deeper there and I hope that people can feel it. I am really excited about running this game because I said at the top, but like when I saw the cover for this game, I I immediately knew I had to get it. I started diving into it more and like reading it and looking at all the art inside. 
And the entire time I'm like, this is such a vibe. This is like such like a clear idea of a thing. And honestly, like the more I read it, the more I got a little bit intimidated of trying to match that type of like, like trying to honor how cool I think this is. Uh, because like, because <laughs> with some games, when when it doesn't have that clear idea, you're kind of like, oh, okay, I can do whatever, you know, and we'll have fun. But when I see something that I really like, I want to like, you don't just want to hit it. You want to hit it out of the park. So I'm really excited to play this and like really take that real swing at it. I, th- I think it's good to have a game like that that sort of uh, gives you a little bit of the heebie-jeebies to to strive to mm-hmm. you know really give it your your best shot. I'm sure that everyone in like in this chat right now has a game where they look at it and think, "God, I would love to just absolutely nail that," or "God, I wish that I was the person who had realized that idea or made that thing and could bring it to the table with the same degree of life and energy as the person who penned it i think it's important to have that because it gives you a uh, an impetus to never stop trying to improve your your gming and everyone's always improving it's always a journey podcasts like this help people to improve all the time and i think there's always more that you can learn from reading a new book even if you never run it because that book is someone else's concentrated experiences of being a gm in a book form and you can learn something from it Good or bad. 100%. And with that, Brian, you know, we talked a little bit about these concerns. Uh, how are you feeling now after hearing everything you just you just heard? Um, you know, I'm feeling good. I, you know, I'm still worried. Like, as I said, like, I want to hit it out of the park and I want to really honor how cool I think this is. But after talking and kind of having, like, Zach ding down on, like, the troubles and the blues and, like, knowing how important that is and the idea of kind of this, like, found family aspect to it, I think I'm feeling Pretty good. I, I'm still, you, you, the first time you do anything, no matter how prepared you are for it, you're nervous because you're like, eh, who knows? But I'm feeling pretty good about this. I mean, and I'm excited to see, honestly, I'm excited to see what my uh, players do because, you know, what's what's the line? I think it was like General Eisenhower said, like, plans, what is it? Don't survive first contact with the enemy. And I actually said this to somebody today. I literally said this line to somebody today. A plan never survives first contact with the players. And I cannot account account for three other people's actions at the table. Plans are worthless, but planning is everything. That's the other one I was looking for, yeah. This book will not give you a strat- a plan of what you're going to do lay by lay, but what you're going to get is a strategy, which is what we've just given you. Interacting with troubles, working here, building towards that story, understanding what the things are. And when you have the advice, the strategy... You don't need a step-by-step because then you will know what decisions you will make in any situation. And that is what the GM advice in this book is meant to do. And if I could give one, like, two pieces of advice for for running this game. Please do. Don't write stories, write characters. Write NPCs for the players to interact with who have their own aims, their own goals that they're working towards and describe and portray how those people are working towards those things and getting the players in on it. And that will lead to a cool benefactor, a cool contact, a cool hookup, a cool friend, a cool enemy for the player group that will make for memorable stories. And I think that's the best way that planning overcomes plans. And then my second piece of advice would be when describing a scene, try and touch base on all five senses because everyone knows what a CRT monitor looks like. 
But what does the room that it's in smell like? Does it smell like old smoke? Is the floor underfoot kind of sticky? Is the door that you came in letting in a draft? Is it cold in there? And there you have like an entire vibe for the room that's got the CRT monitor in it, which is distinctly a little more depressing than a clean cut, white paneled sci-fi space that a monitor in a room that takes up a whole room might suggest. Back against the wall. Take something that sucks in America, <laughs> put it in space. Fair. So, America. Yeah, that'll get you far. So. Yeah. Space station, it's a 7-Eleven. And, uh, and perhaps the most important final question of advice for Brian uh, is a music recommendation for while he's doing that planning. Um, and we want to challenge you to give a recommendation that's not on the official playlist you've put out. Oh, oh, man. Um... Fun story, there are three versions. There are three versions of that official playlist. There was a draft version, which is entirely private. There is a semi-draft, which I shared with some friends, and then there's the public version. And I can't remember what's on any of them. So I'm opening my Spotify right now. There's a fourth playlist, which is my Orbital Blues playlist, which is less country and more jazz. And there's a fifth one, which I think is Josh's one that you can find. All That Glitters also has a separate one, which is one of the adventures done by Tom Mecredy, who wrote that. And then, honestly, my ultimate technique, and this is a cop-out, is if you go to the Soul Muppet Discord server, there is a channel called Orbital Blues Music, mm. and you can listen to what everyone else thinks the Orbital Blues music sounds like. Yeah, you couldn't have asked a more open Yeah, that, this here. is like a master <laughs> technique. Uh, but yeah, for me, I play Gasparo Dilietto's uh, Dance of the Whales. Which is just like weird, <laughs> bad, weird jazz bad jazz that is like 12 minutes long and has a sensible bit in the middle. Weird, bad jazz. I don't think that's on my official playlist. Uh, a Walk to the Peak. Orville Peck's Pony or Bruce Springsteen's Darkness on the Edge of Town. Anything by like early Springsteen would be a driving like influence on on Orbital Blues. Uh, this This love affair with deserts and cowboys and being born to run was was my biggest influence on on orbital blues so i would i would say that yeah darkness on the edge of town by bruce springsteen and when you're talking about kind of broken down america you're really mostly thinking of new jersey so that definitely works <laughs> yeah yeah uh new jersey anywhere like you know if you want to go a bit more bit more backwater planets you go texas one of the planets in the in the new adventure is like uh, Pacific Northwest, which is going to introduce some greenery to the setting for the first time. I think one of Josh's notes in the making of the art is that I didn't use any green um, in this book, but here's a shrub. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think the original Orbital Blues book has a tree in it. No, a, a green is not a color that appears. And we realized all these. <laughs> All these wooden <laughs> panels have to come from somewhere. And in Afterburn, you finally get to know where. Thank you so much, Zach, Sam, for coming on, taking us through Afterburn, taking us through Brian's woes, worries, and excitements for, for the next session. Um, Brian, any final questions for our guests? Or are you feeling good? I'm feeling good. I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm ready and rearing. I want to blast off into, the, into these orbital blues, baby. And uh, Zach and Sam, do you want to tell the people where they can find you? My Twitter is at 
is at Sam Sleeney, where I occasionally just retweet things that make me laugh. Yeah, my my name is a gift from the search engine optimization gods. I am the only Sleeney out there. I have defeated and eaten all the others. So I'm I am quite easy to find. Uh, SLE, anyway. I am uh, Zach or the Jelly Muppet. Uh, I run Soul Muppet Publishing. And you can find us on many platforms by typing Soul Muppet into your search bar. I love it. And we make tons of RPGs, All with the Blues, Best of the Left Bear, which we talked about, tons of other stuff. Also run a publishing company that creates, publishes RPGs from around the world from those of interesting people. We are on every social media platform because I have a marketing manager now, which means I don't have to do it myself. But if you want to hear my ravings specifically, mostly about Warhammer and how depressed I am, uh, you can find me at, at Jelly Muppet. Uh, best place to talk to us is the Solmuppet Discord server, which you can find a link to on our website, solmuppet-store.co.uk, and that's got our mailing list on it as well, where you hear from us once a month about all the new and ridiculous things we're doing. And that is all for this episode of My First Dungeon, Orbital Blues. This season is sponsored by Soul Muppet Publishing and Orbital Blues Afterburn. The Kickstarter for Orbital Blues Afterburn is launching next Tuesday, October 17th. And I highly recommend you check it out by following the affiliate link down in the description and show your support for this excellent game. And if you want to show your support for this excellent show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash myfirstdungeonpod to hear a bit more of this conversation with Zach and Sam. We're going to talk a little bit about how this season came to be, and you might even get to hear some of the 500 ship names that we sent to Zach unsolicited. Uh, Some of them are pretty good. On our Patreon, you will also get access to the Dice Pool, our Patreon-exclusive podcast feed that will include cast talkbacks for each episode of our Orbital Blues season, as well as monthly bonus actual plays from all of us here at My First Dungeon. And last but not least, as always, remember, if you're having fun, you're already doing it right. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. If you're hearing this, that means you listen to every last second of this episode. And if you simply cannot wait until the next episode drops, you should head over to patreon.com slash myfirstdungeonpod and become a member of the Dice Pool. Fresh! For just a few bucks a month, you'll get cast talkbacks, original games, and a full-length bonus actual play each and every month. As of the end of 2023, there's already over 20 hours of bonus audio, plus a whole bunch of other goodies to enjoy. So head on over to patreon.com slash myfirstdungeonpod and jump on into the dice pool. We'll see you there. Splash!